This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Now through April 20th, 2019, I'm running the Winter to Spring fundraiser with two goals in mind. The first is to send co-host David Bilbury back to California for Transform 19, so he can continue to talk with the thought leaders of regenerative business. The second goal is to hire a sound engineer to improve the editing and audio mix of the show. Any amount will help, so give anything you can. Donate online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast or by mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. My guest today is Zev Friedman, founder of Cooperate WNC, a mutual aid organization in Western North Carolina. A longtime permaculture practitioner, Zev's current area of interest is similar to my own, supporting people, communities, and organizations to see the long-term implementation of earth-restoring and human-healing systems. One of those ways is through the use of mutual aid, as outlined by Kropotkin and others throughout the 20th century, to share resources and various forms of capital across a community of like-minded individuals. Using mutual aid as the basis for our conversation, Zev leads us through the scale on which this kind of cooperation occurs. Something larger than just close friends and family, but much smaller than a nation-state. As we talk about today, we're looking at regional groups and hubs that support the members and can also network with one another. As environmentally-minded folks, we also consider the lessons from the bioregional movement when looking at where to draw our lines of association as the peoples of a river, mountains, or woodland. However we decide to associate, ideally in person but even virtually, we can all work together to render aid to those who share our goals and desires. Enjoy this conversation with Zev and learning more about the modern mutual aid movement. I'll join you again afterward. Then, Zev, can you give us a little bit of your biography and background, how you came to permaculture and your work with living systems design, and then we can move into a conversation about your current work with Cooperate WNC and the idea of creating a mutual aid organization for a regenerative future? Sure, Scott. Yeah, I grew up as part of a social and ecological activist family my parents met through the anti-nuclear movement in the 70s out in the northwest U.S. Then we moved back to to North Carolina when uh, I was two in 1983. And so I kind of grew up in the midst of lots of conversations and activity going on around a vision for a sustainable human future and but it was a strange thing kind of being a kid. I grew up in that, but didn't really get it myself until I was about 17. And then I kind of had a series of visionary experiences that led me into a really deep commitment myself to maintaining the beauty of the earth and the diverse peoples on it. And then also in the same moment, kind of uh, the horror at understanding the level of destruction and loss that was occurring. And so I kind of developed my own dedication to doing something about that, keeping the beauty alive and helping to slow down the loss when I was 17. And my whole life has been living out that attempt since then. And permaculture came along when I was in college for human ecology as such an applied systems level, empowering approach to, to potentially doing something about it. And so that's how I got in more deeply into permaculture I think that it it is one of the most effective things going on on the planet. However, my current work with Cooperate WNC, which we're here to talk about, has been 
a response to some of what I see as the limiting factors of the permaculture movement, the way it's lived out so far. Um, and so I was working as a permaculture consultant and educator for 13 or 14 years with a couple of businesses, including Living Systems Design, uh, which I owned with Chuck Marsh, and a permaculture elder who just passed this last year. He's an old family friend of, of our families. And I've started to feel that uh, and think that there are some deep limitations to the models that we've been using to bring permaculture, the insights and ecological patterning of permaculture into a transformative place in the world. And that although permaculture ethics focus on earth care, people care, and an economic ethic of economic fairness or sharing the surplus, I feel that we haven't done as good of a job with the social and economic parts as with the ecological and that that is actually a key to kind of some of the limiting, the limitations of how much impact we've had um, in transforming the trajectory of our species on the planet. Mentioning Chuck, I had the opportunity to interview him in the earlier days of the show and loved him very much. And it was, it was quite a shock to hear that he had passed. And uh, I can only imagine the time that you got to share with him. But what you mentioned there about the social side of permaculture is one of the reasons why I have spent the last two or three years with the show really focusing on that and having those conversations is that in my own experience and talking with some other teachers and folks who have been doing this for a long time is that it's a lot of folks seem to come to this and they practice in the landscape for a number of years. And then sometime around three to five years of practicing permaculture, it seems like there's a switch that gets flipped and then they see this broader application and how we can apply this to our human systems. And so I was wondering if you might speak more about your discovery of that and how that led to this work of mutual aid and cooperate WNC. Sure. That's really great naming that and you having the breadth of interaction with different people to kind of see that pattern of the three to five year thing. That's really interesting. And for me, I think I would name the pattern as simple, the individual approach versus the collaborative approach. And that what I've started to discover myself is that 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 renaming that Bill Mollison and David Holmgren did right at the beginning when they changed it from permanent agriculture to permanent culture, being the etymology of the word permaculture, that was a deep insight that we mostly haven't acted on in the global permaculture movement. Most of the permaculture application that I'm aware of is focused on the biophysical infrastructure implementation, and that runs into inherent limitations because, like you were just telling me before before we got on to on the air, that you're 40 now, you need to have health care. Well, we live inside a larger system that is limiting on the on its ability to meet human needs. And if I'm growing a diverse edible forest garden in my, in my backyard, it turns out that doesn't deal with health care if I have a major illness or injury. That doesn't deal with my aging parents. It doesn't necessarily provide child care if I have to go work a day job to make enough income to pay my mortgage for the forest garden land. It doesn't necessarily provide for social connection and mentorship. There's this whole ecosystem of human needs that don't get met by the simple biophysical application of permaculture. And so I think what happens is we then start to sense that in our own lives. I know that happened for me 
um, pretty much as soon as I got into it, I like moved into someone's backyard in Asheville, North Carolina and started building a cob house. And then I quickly discovered the economic realities and relational repercussions of trying to live, you know, on $3,000 a year and what it meant to be in a cob house that didn't have an insulated roof yet in January. And when I started getting sick every two weeks and then didn't have health care to help me deal with that. And so I started to realize that was when I was 21 years old. I'm 37 now that, that the type of change, the type of transformation, the type of integrated life-giving systems that we're all trying to grow have to include some deep economic social components. And then that, what that comes down to is the scale of collaboration. It comes down to working together in groups that are at the right scale to address given needs. And there are different scales that are appropriate for different types of needs and goals. So for example, in I live at Earth Heathen Eco Village now, it's outside of Asheville, North Carolina. And in our neighborhood, we have about 28 people living here. And uh, a few years ago, everyone's uh, photovoltaic systems because we're off the grid. All the electricity is coming from solar and micro hydro. A few years ago, everyone's systems started to give out because they were 20 years old. Everyone was looking at replacement systems and we kind of sat down and figured out, all right, if everyone in the neighborhood replaces each of our photovoltaic systems with its own array, its own batteries, its own generator, that's going to cost six to $10,000 a household. Or we could create a microgrid and dig underground lines to each building have one battery array, one backup generator, one photovoltaic array, um, and cut a lot of costs and make a more reliable system. So that's what we ended up doing. We ended up spending about 55000 altogether on a microgrid, uh, which is more reliable, less expensive, less polluting, um, whereas it would have cost probably around one hundred twenty dollars to $140,000 for everybody to put their individual systems in. So that's an example of collaborating at the right scale. I think we had a success there. If it had been too much smaller, it wouldn't have. We wouldn't have gotten the same cost-benefit ratio. And if it was 150 people, it would be too complex, and we'd start to have to have a lot of bureaucracy and management issues and politics and stuff. So for that particular thing, this the right scale was right in the range that we were at. And so what I started to discover myself is then how to determine the scale of collaboration to meet the social and economic needs in addition to the kind of biophysical design of permaculture for whatever the situation is. And what I like with what you shared there is one of the things that some of my local permaculture friends and I have talked about. It's something that Tasha Kluna, the permapixie out of Australia, she and I talked about when we were in our interview together, was that right now when it comes to trying to be on this edge as permaculture practitioners, that we're pushing the social, economic, and ecological impacts that individuals can have and communities that we're really in a period of transition. And it's, you know, there's some conversations that my co-host has had about regenerative business that push a little too hard sometimes for my personal political view towards the system as it is, but also recognizing that right now that that is still something that we live with, that there is a value in looking at who can help us raise the capital for some of these investments that need to be made to reach out to like the investment class, because they have access to money to help build food forests in communities or philanthropic organizations that are willing to help build community gardens for schools and things that as we live on this edge, 
finding those other people who are willing to cross that fence with us, even though they might not be as deeply rooted in many of our practices. And just accepting that right now, and probably for the next two, three, or four generations, as we continue to develop these ideas, that we are going to be in a period of heavy transition and finding ways to blend permaculture with capitalism and these different isms and systems that exist right now. And that's where I like this idea of what you were saying about the scale of collaboration and that finding those efficiencies within a system. And with my own knowledge and experience with mutual aid societies, because I'm a member of, and this is something that you and I discussed some in our email exchange leading up to this interview, that I'm a part of a private fraternity. And that in that, being around people who share the same ideas, and even though we might not necessarily like each other, as happens when a group gets large enough, that we're still there for one another. When a friend had a house fire, that we passed the hat to help him raise some money to repair his home and also buy some clothing for his wife and children that we were able to donate clothing to him then, you know, asking what size pants do you wear? What size shirts do you wear? And everybody throwing some things that they had who were those sizes into some bags, getting him into a place where he could still go to work and continue these kinds of things while rebuilding that life and knowing that there are these social bonds as well as economic support to help get them to the next step. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about that scale of collaboration and then talk about how that is influencing this work of mutual aid. Sure. Yeah, that's that's really what it's coming from is uh, my perception is that, or my, I'll say my opinion is that because of the reactionary identity that especially Mollison created at the beginning of the permaculture movement as being a grassroots movement, even though the last chapter of a designer's manual is all about bioregional scale collaboration, what really has gotten run with is mostly a pioneer type kind of individualist grassroots thing. And so we've ended up in a sense throwing the baby out with the bathwater and rejecting some of the types of larger scale collaborative approaches that are necessary to actually dismantle and, if you will, compost some of the systems that we're inside of to grow new things out of them. And so, for example, healthcare. Healthcare is something that is being struggled with right now in our country, in the United States, in a big way. And, you know, according to a, a, a big listening project that a local organization did in Western North Carolina, healthcare is the single most big topic and big challenge for low-income people, about 1,500 people they interviewed. And that's a project called Down Home North Carolina, if anyone wants to check into their report. And so healthcare is something that, yes, we can talk about herbal medicine and alternative approaches and holistic healthcare, preventative care. Those are all important parts of healthcare, but also emergency care and cancer care and care for aging people who need intensive, highly skilled medical support, those things are not provided by the permaculture movement because we don't have a scale of economic support uh, or mechanisms that can support something like that. And so you mentioned the investor class a little bit ago, and that's, I think, one strategy that is ne- is going is part of the toolkit. But another one, uh, which is has this history of success and application in the U.S. is mutual aid societies. And 
those were, they were used, well, basically as soon as, as people from Europe got here, but they were also existing here already, mutual aid societies. Uh, the Cherokee here in Western North Carolina have what are called Gadugin, that's G-A-D-U-G-I, which are mutual aid societies based in agricultural cooperation, which is a really interesting piece and in connection to permaculture that we should come back to, is the relationship historically of mutual aid to agricultural cycles. But then the, the, that agricultural co- cooperation extended out in the Gadugi to other types of cooperation. Like if, if someone's house burned down, it was the people in the Gadugi who rebuilt the house, or if a child got orphaned, it was someone in the Gadugi who adopted the child. So, but then the European ones came, and there was a whole tradition in Europe and Africa and Asia of, of mutual aid societies as well. And they began that pattern here in kind of a white and European based culture. And then when slavery, quote unquote, ended, um, which was actually right, we had entered the Jim Crow era and racism was institutionalized through lots of means, including economic means. And basically, banks were controlled by white supremacists who refused to loan money to African-Americans to allow them to become part of the owning class and achieve power in society. In that way, African-Americans got together and formed mutual aid societies. And the core of those, the heartbeat of them was economic collaboration. They pooled money first in savings pools, and then later they formed their own banks and credit unions. And they used those institutions to loan money to each other to start schools and hospitals, to buy land for farms, to buy blocks of houses in cities, to provide legal defense funds, to provide burial and cemetery services, take care of elderly people, all the things that they needed in their communities to lift themselves up, become owners, get training, get skills, get resources and land. They did that through mutual aid societies. Um, And so that's what what I'm looking at, and that's what Cooperate WNC is, is an attempt to apply that old pattern of mutual aid in our current setting and say, how can we get permaculture to go deeper by using collaborative economics? I I would call investor economics one thing, but it's not quite collaborative. It's more like relying on the people with power and wealth, whereas collaborative economics is lots of people who don't have that much money pulling it together and then investing it carefully in strategic places that are going to lift our whole community up. How do we do that? And then we're in control and we're not accountable to the wealthy. And by the way, no, don't have anything inherently against wealthy people, but just saying that it, it is more empowering to a group if we control the source of the wealth and then we can invest in a healthcare, a regional healthcare cooperative that can provide healthcare as a as a human service rather than as a profit-driven health insurance industry. We can invest in renewable energy microgrids like I was just talking about. We can invest in community land trusts that make land access for people who couldn't afford it on their own. We can invest in affordable housing in cities. We can invest in carbon farming enterprises that need an initial capital startup. And once they get past that barrier, can be a solvent business model. Right. So this becomes an economic collaborative strategy that allows us to invest in things that need a larger scale of collaboration than we've been achieving so far. It always amazes me what can be done when a lot of people pool a small or reasonable amount of money 
my first introduction to mutual aid societies, there was an article I read several years ago, and I may be misremembering some of the details, so I apologize for that. I'll see if I can find it. But in there, it was talking about how some of these ethnic communities like the Italian communities, the Irish communities in New York City formed mutual aid groups. And then what they were doing is for the equivalent of like $20 a week, they were able to ensure that everybody in the community was able to make their rent. Everybody was able to eat. And I was really surprised that at the time they were saying that it was something like only two out of every three families were working at the time because of just the the coming and going of labor and things like that. And yet they were still able to take care of their entire community and meet all of their needs and wondering about the ways that we might be able to do that now. But in that article that it was talking about how a lot of those like familial and community organizations were kind of pushed out by business that, you know, our insurance companies took over that space, that it's government programs took over that space. And have you encountered that any in putting together Cooperate WNC and having any issues like that, that you run up against legislation or something in order to make this happen? Or because it's a community organization, can you just kind of do it? We have a whole working group that is focused on doing the legislative and policy research around that exact question right now. We're definitely anticipating some pushback and even hostility from various special interest groups who, frankly, would kind of want to put out a business <laughs> like much of the health insurance industry, which, again, is an industry that is organized around profit rather than around providing human health. So that's a big design criteria for the new generation of mutual aid societies is learning from that history that you were just referring to. Because, yes, there's a history, especially in the 1920s and 30s, of all kinds of private enterprises, including private doctors associations, lobbying state legislatures to create restrictive rules at the state level, especially that were designed explicitly to put mutual aid societies out of business so that the private doctor associations could set costs, essentially, for health care rather than being undercut by mutual aid doctors associations who were negotiated to an affordable price by the mutual aid societies. Um, so that's definitely a real issue. And I think uh, we would be naive if we thought that we were going to get away with any of this without some opposition. And so one is designing our organizations, all different regional mutual aid networks from the get-go to anticipate some of those issues and uh, find clever ways around it. And two is there is ultimately going to be some policy dimension to this and legislative dimension to this. Um, and so that's going to, that takes a lot of organizational capacity to, to work with legislation and lobbying and all that. And that's not where my passion is, but I think it is going to be a necessary part of this ultimately, but I want to get some, I think we need to get some successes going to show, and then we'll have more footing as well for that kind of work. A piece I neglected to mention about the African-American mutual aid history, which by the way, I want to mention a book, a really amazing book called Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice by Jessica Gordon Nemherd. I might be pronouncing her name wrong, but it's N-E-M-B-H-A-R-D. And it's all about, like it says, the history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. But part of uh, what my learning from this book and other sources is that there's this effect where, like you were talking about the immigrant mutual aid in New York City, there's this cross-linking, integrative 
effect that organically happens from mutual aid when people collaborate economically. It's a, you know, everyone's putting skin in the game and it creates a tighter sense of interdependence and trust um, and accountability and creates relationships just through the practicality of what it means to manage economic collaborative enterprises. And then in the case of African-American mutual aid groups, that cultural glue, that kind of relational momentum from mutual aid is a big part, along with churches, of what led to the ability to organize the civil rights movement. So that's a kind of a theme. And then with the immigrant groups, like you were saying, there's this other cross-linking that occurs, like where you said, you know, people put in $20 a month and get access to having their needs met. Well, part of the way those needs get met is through a non-cash economy too. Now, you know, if you have people joining this mutual aid group, now there's a, a networking tool that lets somebody who has an empty room find somebody who needs a room and find an affordable place to live that's maybe a third of the rent cost if they had just rented an apartment on their own. So it creates low cost and creative solutions as well as creating a, a straight up cash support system. And what you shared there makes me think about the distinction between like an economist's view of money as a system of exchange and the anthropologist's view of money as a system of social connection that through the use of, of money, of money and debt that we wind up then creating a system of support for each other, because you know that somebody else owes something to you. So you want to make sure that they succeed so that they can get it back to you, but then you owe it to somebody else. And then eventually you realize that everybody in your community owes somebody something. And that if any one of you breaks that chain, then it all kind of comes apart. But that, you know, these are those kinds of ways that we can use all of the resources that are available to build up those kinds of connections and create long-term support, whether or not we directly know someone face-to-face, that we can grow outside those normal uh, social bonds. What is it? The Dunbar number of how many people we can know as individuals and as people and reach beyond that because of these other ways that we can create meaningful bonds with one another. Exactly. That's anthropologically and what Kropotkin talks about in his book, which you mentioned earlier, Peter Kropotkin, kind of his seminal book on mutual aid called Mutual Aid, A Factor in Evolution. He's talking about how mutual aid societies fill in this archetypal gap that's been present in the way societies have been organized at least the beginning of agriculture, where we have organization arising organically at the family and clan level, the clan level being like a grouping of extended families. And then nation states have organized based on usually it comes down to power and military might and the ability to kind of dominate territory. But then there's this middle scale there, again, back to scale between the clan scale and the nation state scale where mutual aid societies fill this archetypal gap and serve, just like you're saying, as a middle range of intimacy and a middle range of interdependence where it's big enough to have leverage on the political landscape and the the larger economic conditions, but small enough to remain accountable to its members. And so that is the sweet spot that we can go for with that to organize it deliberately that way. So it's, you know, it's bigger than the clan, bigger than the family. Probably you're never going to know all the people in a given mutual aid network, but there's still a sense of shared identity, shared purpose, shared well-being and support in that network among the members of it. 
And what you outline and this, this size of a mutual aid society, what I like about it is, and as you mentioned earlier, it's one of the things that, you know, Bill Mollison has chapter 14, which is all about social and economic systems. But what was laid out there, many of those models are still, I feel, being experimented with in many ways, that when we look at things like local currency and let systems, we have plenty of examples that have existed for a long time, but we also have plenty that have risen and fallen. And yet here we have, you know, mutual aid societies that have this long history of how they operate, that they pull from many of the administrative and organizational theory and tools that we currently have. I mean, it'd be real easy to find somebody with an MBA to sit in and help to organize something like this and have that kind of a professional view and be able to go talk with an investor or a bank. And yet I don't, I don't know why this hasn't been utilized before. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the, in the permaculture world. Yeah. I mean, there's even an IRS tax status for mutual aid societies. 501c8 organizations are the, I are there's, there's actually two mutual aid society levels, 501c8 and c10. C10 might be uh, what you're, the one that you're part of is if it has a legal entity, but 501c8 was created by the IRS specifically for mutual benefit society. So it's, it means an organization that's created for the purpose of delivering benefits and services to its members, which is distinguished from a 501c3, most of the nonprofit organizations that a lot of us have, which is more for educational and advocacy purposes. So C8 is is explicitly there. And the, dis- and the distinction on a tax level is that a C8 is tax exempt itself, but donations to it are not tax deductible. Yeah. So just uh, going into the, into the weeds a little bit there on that one, but in the case, anyway, any of your listeners are wanting to kind of look into the details and well, I feel like the bioregional movement, right? That is a similar scale to what we're looking at with mutual aid societies and I, I was, I grew up as part of the bioregional movement. Like my, my parents are part of it. And I helped organize a big North American Congress that was at Earth Even in 2005. And it's awesome, but it, it didn't have staying power. Um, it's pretty much melted and been composted into other things now. And my opinion is that the single missing ingredient there was collaborative economics. And that if the bioregional movement had been organizing around say, a network of credit unions and mutual aid societies around them, that then all those thousands of people who got involved in the bioregional movement had started investing their money in the projects that we were dreaming about together, that it would still be happening and would be thriving right now, or it could have been, could be still thriving right now, because, again, everyone would have that skin in the game and we would have gotten the nutrients to support all of those amazing ideas that were being talked about. And you remind me of something from my teacher training. One of my instructors there, Rico Zook, does community scale permaculture design and implementation in northern India. And as much as we talk in permaculture about designing ourselves out of the system, these kinds of economic and community questions were one of the things that he raised that we have to think about. That it's not just training somebody how to do the work, but how if you're building very large check dams because you want to slow water flow through a valley and not just someone's yard, how do you ensure that that work continues? If somebody needs tools or other resources, how do you structure into your design, making sure that those things are available? And within like the permaculture community, all the different economic resources that we could tap into, or even just having something as simple as a community savings account for a given project, being able to cooperate with other 
just with nonprofits so that we don't all have to have a nonprofit to take donations, um, but to build those kinds of social relationships to make these kinds of things work. Yeah, exactly. Right. And have that institutional memory and have the intergenerational transfer of the knowledge and passion to support the projects. I think that that kind of cultural, cultural genetics is at least as important as the biological genetics that a lot of us have focused on, but they go together also. One of the pieces you mentioned earlier that I also really appreciate in this conversation is that you already have an example of how this can work because of your microgrid at Earth Haven. And that one of the things that I get into conversations about like organizational development and a lot of the work that we're trying to do as permaculture practitioners, which my one instructor, Andrew Millison, even got into is that, you know, maybe one in four permaculture designs ever get implemented between the consultations, the conversations, somebody contacts us, you know, there's a rule of thumb that one of my friends, Ethan Hughes gets into is that, you know, maybe one in 10 projects even ever launches gets past the conversation stage. After a couple of years, maybe only one in 10 of those are still extant in some form, but that after a decade, maybe only one in 10 of those is still around. So, you know, maybe one in a thousand projects actually becomes productive and viable. Well, now that we're at this edge and at this space, how do we really make it work? And that I think that a big piece of that is that we're missing a lot of these models that ride that edge and pull everything together. And that's where with this long history of mutual aid societies, we have lots of literature about how they can work. We have lots of skills that can go into it. But now it's just finding projects like Cooperate WNC that show how permaculture can be a part of this other movement and again extend our umbrella over something else and pull that into our toolkit. Yeah, exactly. Well said, well said. And may I respond to that with a an anecdote that I think could illustrate well to our listeners how that could look. So the the vision that we've expressed so far for Cooperate WNC is Cooperate WNC is a regional mutual aid network that uses collaborative economic tools like a credit union, savings pools, which you mentioned earlier, time banking, to support a network of community centers, physical community centers, which are centers for meeting human needs, for providing services like healthcare, childcare, classes, events, maybe even having a credit union branch in each community center, a micro credit union branch, food access via food drop-offs from farmers near each community center, and that those community centers are these places for meeting human services, as well as for being nuclei for carbon farming strategies, distribution places for plant material, seeds, and demonstration sites for really badass, well-done permaculture, so that if you got hundreds of people coming through each of these community centers, they're eating food from the system on site and uh, having access to propagants and information and learning and mentorship around how to start systems at their own places. So that's the idea of using this regional collaborative economics to support a network of, of community centers. So as an example, you know, and, and working with the permaculture insight of starting with, you know, working from controlled fronts, starting where we already have success, the idea is not to just try to fabricate a bunch of community centers kind of from the top down, but rather we're envisioning our network as, as if we had to think of a biological 
image for it, it would be the mycorrhizae. So Cooperate WNC is the mycorrhizal network that connects together the trees and shrubs, which are other organizations and community centers and initiatives throughout our region, which is a 23-county region, Western North Carolina, in the mountains of, of Western North Carolina. And so we're not, for instance, we wouldn't be opening and running a given community center, but we rather find a community group or a landowner who's very collaboratively minded, who already has something going on, already has motivation, already has some knowledge and some resources, and we say, oh, you seem like uh, you're doing really well. How can we support you in amplifying your impact? How can we uh, address barriers that you're experiencing through the collaborative economics and the resource and information sharing of Cooperate WNC? So an example of this that we're working on is uh, with a doctor. A doctor, she has a, an existing rural healthcare clinic um, in one of the rural counties here. And she's a holistic practitioner, a family doctor, and um, primary care physician. She has about 2,000 clients who come through over the years. And she has a 40-acre property. And so I've been working with her first as a permaculture designer and now as in the, in the mode of Cooperate WNC to develop this vision for a, a community-supported health association, a CSHA, like a community-supported agriculture, you know, like a CSA, but a CSHA, where... Her clients can sign up for packages that include include healthcare, primary primary care, as well as access to classes around health, as well as food and medicine grown on her 40-acre property. And so 25 acres of that 40 is degraded pasture, and we have developed a plan for converting that to silva pasture, kind of working with Eric Tones Myers, Eric Tones Myers' advocacy for silva pasture as the most carbon sequestering type of agroforestry and temperate regions, as well as very productive for, for high-quality food. And then as that comes online, that can be, begin providing high-quality animal foods and other foods, especially mulberries, are a big part of this particular design, to the people who are signing up for the CSHA. So it's a business model that's integrative, creating a community center building where classes are happening and childcare during the day, meals being served at different times, people can have events at night and then are also getting their health needs met. And so we're, we're working out from a controlled front on, in that sense because she already has the thing going, and then we can just come in and support it with the various modalities of the mutual aid network. And just to add in one more piece here, which is, I think, very will be interesting to, to these listeners, which is working with the idea, which is actually happening pretty quickly and looking like it's going to, to work, a regional carbon credit system where it's a voluntary carbon credit system where individuals and organizations who want to compensate for their carbon footprint while they also look at how to redesign their lives and organizations to have a lower carbon footprint pay into this fund at a per ton of carbon rate. And then that money is used to subsidize different landowners in uh, establishing agroforestry plantings and managing them during the implementation phase for carbon sequestration and, of course, other uses. And that's, this is modeled after a program that the Ithaca Institute, Ithaca with a K, I bet you're familiar with them, has, has done. Um, they're based in Switzerland, but it's a project working with Western European nations um, and then that are investing in Nepal and Nepalese farmers getting agroforestry systems going there. So we get, are then bringing that to bear on this property 
uh, with this doctor and bringing the first round of voluntary carbon credit money to help her pay for the silvopasture implementation and go ahead and get that past that cost barrier for her, get this pilot system going on. And then that could be a modality that expands to other community centers as well. So you see how it's like this, it starts to really integrate healthcare, climate resilience, food access, childcare, all these things come to bear and are reinforced by working at the right scale of regional collaboration. It's refreshing to hear some of the thoughts that I've had over the years being reflected in the work of someone else and hearing that it, it is possible and that it can be implemented. Because I thought so often about doing a lot of these things at a community scale. Here in central Pennsylvania, we have a number of apartment complexes where you can buy the flats there or townhouses. And the thought of the entire community going together and doing solar, of paying for one of the places there that a, a community doctor might live and create an, an office for them there and to bring folks together. And here it is that you're finding those doctors who are already in the community and providing that space for them, finding the educational groups and helping to expand what it is that they're doing to become this locus for your community. And that in doing so, you bring people to places where they're already going and then kind of share these other pieces of mutual aid with them, because then you can have your credit union banker show up. Maybe the bank manager come and talk about what the different tools are that you can use within the community. Talk about how you can have a group own a savings account together and what can be involved in, in administering to that so that you can have a savings pool. And for sure, to be a caveat, you know, we're just starting all of this. We don't have any tangible success yet. So I want to be really clear with managing expectations of the listeners and everything that these are all ideas, but that they're coming into, into tangibility right now. A lot of it's happening and we'll see how it works. So we'll be reporting back over the next few years. But certainly one of the goals of this is, uh, I should mention an organization, which maybe, maybe you're aware of already, but it's called Humans. And that stands for Humans United in Mutual Aid Networks. And that's out of Madison, Wisconsin. A really wonderful organizer named Stephanie Rierick is leading that up. And I'm on the board now and, and we're, we're one of the pilot projects for it. But what that is, is a, is a global network of people who are organizing regional mutual aid networks. And Stephanie worked in time banking for a long time. And I think then she became convinced that time banking needed to be embedded in a larger framework of interdependence and collaborative economics than just time banking. And so that's how she got into mutual aid. And so Humans is working to mentor people around the world in starting up regional mutual aid networks. And there's a, there's a pilot site call every two weeks on Tuesdays and everything. So it's like a peer it's a peer cohort going on as well with that. And so if any listeners are interested in getting involved with that, check out mutualaidnetwork.org to get involved with them. And they are focused more on the so-called alternative economics piece, not as much on cash dollars um, and mechanisms for, for dollars, but they do also recognize the role that that has. And they, they have a tool on there called Posterity Budgeting, which is about going through your own life and doing an inventory of places where you might be able to meet needs through other mechanisms of exchange and interdependence other than cash, and then reducing the need for dollars that way, and then figuring out right, right livelihood to earn the dollars that, that one does need. So that's a pretty interesting tool on there. 
the last thing I want to say about that is just that one of the explicit goals of Cooperate WNC is we, you know, we are trying to create our regional mutual aid network, but we're also trying to create a body of a uh, cycle of experience and some knowledge and essentially like a patterns language of mutual aid that can be shared and help other people in other regions to get similar things going on. So I invite listeners to contact us. And, and if you're, if you're getting serious about trying to start something up, then, then we could talk and talk about what we've learned so far. And that's part of our mission is to help others. Well, I'm really glad that you're bringing this well-established, very functional solution to so many of the social and economic issues that permaculture practitioners face back into the forefront of the conversation, providing this education and link to all these resources. And with that, I was wondering if you have any other resources or thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners before we draw this conversation to a close. Let's see. So we have a podcast that's called Hive Story, the Mutual Aid Podcast. Um, we only have one episode up online so far, just getting started, and that's going to be focusing on that. And so that's another thing is if anyone wants, uh, if anyone has projects going on that might be good to highlight on that podcast, we'd love to interview you. And let's see, there are a bunch of books. We already mentioned Potkin. We mentioned Collective Courage. I'm just going over my book stack here to, <laughs> to remind myself. Let's see. Oh, you know what? There's this really interesting book from a village that I got to visit in southern Mexico outside of Oaxaca City that has a they have a 12 village a, uh, mutual aid network that's been going on for thousands of years. And the, the book is called Milpa from Seed to Salsa. And that's referring to Milpa, the old Central American style of polyculture farming embedded in a forest agriculture long-term rotational cycle that Three Sisters is kind of a simplified version of. And yeah, there's this, this town of Yuku Yoko that if anyone wants to see kind of an embodied set of stories and pictures from a group of people that practices mutual aid, that's really rich. And I think that's great and gives some additional resources. And what I'd like to do is I'll go ahead and see if I can find copies of those books. And if you want to send any others my way, and then I'll do some giveaways for the listeners. I'm already planning to give away a copy of Mutual Aid, and The Conquest of Bread from Kropotkin. Listeners will be able to find more information about that in the show notes as this goes live. And then, yeah, anything else, Zev, that you want to send to me, I'll put together a little care package on mutual aid for folks who are interested. But I really appreciate the time that you took to sit down with me today and to share all of these ideas. I know that we roamed all kinds of places as we did this to touch on the history, some resources that are available, what your vision is of mutual aid in the modern world. And if you'd like to come back sometime and share more about your successes, I'd love to have you. But thank you so much for joining me today, Zev. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Scott. It was, it was fun. Thank you. And that was Zev Friedman. You can find more about his work with Cooperate WNC at wnc-mutual-aid.org or by the link to that and the other resources in the show notes. As Zev mentioned Chuck Marsh in the beginning of our conversation, You'll also find a link there to my interview with Chuck. I'd also like to thank Jennings Ingram for getting me in touch with Zev. Jennings is an awesome permaculture practitioner out of Asheville, North Carolina, whose work you can find on Instagram at green.catalyst. To go with this episode, I'm giving away copies of Peter Kropotkin's Mutual Aid and Conquest of Bread over on Patreon. 
you'll find it at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. This is open to everyone to enter. All you need to do is register with Patreon and leave a comment in the post for the giveaway. As you can hear throughout the conversation with Zev, I am a fan of mutual aid organizations and participate in a private fraternity that has many of the same hallmarks when it comes to people care and the overall size and geographic distribution for such an organization. It's more than a single person can administer to, while connecting more people than we might know, or like, as individuals. I see the development of mutual aid organizations, as informal as the fraternity or as formal as Cooperate WNC, as ways for us to bring people together through free association, without the need for a large bureaucracy, to work together for changes on scales that we cannot readily accomplish on our own. Also, though they are capable of 501c status in the United States, they rest outside the range of what a nonprofit might normally offer regarding educational or outreach goals. Rather than providing aid to a community directly, mutual aid organizations render this to the members. I think we see a lot of organizing like this already within the permaculture community, through the Permaculture Action Network, which you'll hear more about in the next interview, to the various permaculture associations for permaculture professionals, such as PINA, PAN, or the Permaculture Institutes. Mutual aid organizations can provide similar benefits, but in the social and community space. As Zev is looking to work with existing groups in his area, what organizations where you reside could you see using this model to assist? What about creating a gardening mutual aid society, or a skillshare society, or a family and childcare society? Whoever you wish to work with, however you want to help, there is a way to do so with mutual aid right now. Check out Cooperate WNC and the other resources Zev mentioned, and take the next step where you are. Need help with this? Get in touch and I'll do what I can to connect you with ways to move forward. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com Call 717-827-6266 Or if you still like to write a letter and put a stamp on an envelope, The Permaculture Podcast P.O. Box 16 Dauphin, Pennsylvania 17018 From here, the next interview is a conversation about the Permaculture Action Network Permaculture Action Days, with Ryan Rising of PAN, and one of their partners in community engagement and activism, Leah Song of Rising Appalachia. Until then, spend each day making a difference in your community by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.